Um, go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Before we get started, would you pray with me and for me as we approach God's word? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your mercy and your grace for giving us the opportunity to open your word, to hear you speak to us, that we may grow in the image of your Son. May you use us, may you use me as a vessel, a jar of clay, to show the greatness of your power. Put away the distractions from us, Lord. Let us hear you speak through the pages of your word. For your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In good old bright England, Terry Nourish was opening wedding presents with his newlywed wife, and he was excited to find that his parents had gifted him a plant pot. Now, it wasn't just any plant pot. A, a few years ago, they had purchased it for about $100 from an antique shop, and they knew that Terry really liked this plant pot, so they gave it to him. It was about five feet tall on its stand, and so and enamored with uh, gold and, and different things. So it was a it was a fancy plant pot. And over time, it housed a lot of different plants. And on rainy days, his children would use it to play football or soccer. It's about five feet, so if you're less than that, it's perfect. And they they used it great. And the plant pot served its purposes. And one time, Terry heard that the Antique Roadshow was coming to his little town, and so on a whim, he figured, eh, I'll go see what it's worth, maybe get a hundred bucks back. And so he had them evaluate it, only to discover that his plant pot was a French Japonism gold enamel and bronze ornament designed in 1874 by the world-renowned artist Christoffel for a Paris exhibition. And his children had been using it as a goalpost. When it eventually sold on auction, it went for almost $1 million. Most of us wish we had a plant pot like that. <laughs> the reality is, Psalm 19 describes scripture as finer than gold. We have been given unimaginable treasures within the pages of scripture, but many of us, if treat it like a plant pot sitting in our living rooms. Whether from our familiarity or from our hearing Scripture misapplied, a lot of phrases in the Bible end up being relegated to cliches that clutter our vocabulary. When we face suffering and difficulty, grasping for the hope and promises we need, we tend to miss these passages that have been designed to do far more than be relegated to cliches. Phrases from the Bible that are living and active like all things work together for good. Or God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Or, like our passage today, my grace is sufficient for you. My hope is that as we study this passage today, we will recognize its depth and beauty. 
as so much more than a promised band-aid that gets slapped onto our suffering with little effectiveness or thought. May we see the glorious truth today that suffering is excruciating and hard, but God gives us joyful contentment to endure. Suffering is excruciating and hard, but God gives us joyful contentment to endure. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 1. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. To give context, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is doing written battle with what he calls super-apostles, as he refers to them in uh, chapter 11. Peddlers of God's word who use ministry and their so-called gifts to thwart the purposes of God, or attempt to at least. This would be hard enough on its own, but these pseudo-super-apostles are corrupting the Corinthian church, and the Corinthian church is falling for it. These apostles are deceiving this beloved church that Paul gave years of his time with. He invested in his wisdom and heart that he poured out himself for. And his beloved Corinthians are accepting a false message of a false gospel by people who have no idea what the true God is. How do you persuade someone they're believing a lie? If you take time to read through 2 Corinthians, Paul painstakingly argues against their rhetoric, reminding them of the truth of the gospel, that God does not care about flashy words or powerful rhetoric or impressive actions. He cares about the heart, and his treasure is displayed not in greatness, but in jars of humble clay. Paul is very careful throughout the entire book to show that he's not arguing or fighting their answers or rebuttals with defending his reputation. He doesn't care what they say about him. He cares about what God says and cares about God's reputation and name. When his beloved Corinthians ask him, hey, what do you got to show for yourself, Paul, if you're so great an apostle? And he says, you, you are my ministry to the praise of God's glorious grace. There's nothing Paul cares about more. So he's trying to show the church in Corinth that Jesus Christ and him crucified is what matters. So we come to 2 Corinthians 12. As Paul tells of his history with the church, of his suffering that he's gone through, trying to reason with them, 
Though he has full apostolic authority to just go, like some parent to a five-year-old, you're being silly, stop it. He doesn't. He appeals to them with the truth of the gospel. If he doesn't explain to them what he's gone through, then they'll just see him as hypocritical, distant, and unexperienced. But if he tells them too much of what he's done, then they see him as arrogant. Or, even worse, after he's told them all that he's done and gone through, they'll see him as some sort of Christian superhero, more than human. Much like when Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra, and the men were excited and said, they've done these great things and told these great mysteries. They are gods. And Paul had to go into the crowd and rip his robe and say, no, we are just men. And so in the same way, he says to the church in Corinth, I am but a man here to proclaim the glories and excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It wasn't Paul who died to save them or forgave their sins. It was Christ. So as he endeavors to defend both his calling from God and point them beyond himself to the glories of the gospel, he tells them not just of heaven and the greatness that he was caught up to, but the thorn that came after it. The first point we're going to look at is the affliction. The affliction. So Paul is taken up into heaven and then he is given a thorn. Look at verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. The very first thing I want you to notice is that the thorn was given to him. He did not stumble upon it. It did not fall into his lap. Coincidentally, it was not circumstance. It was intentionally given to him. For many of us, it may feel like the difficulties that we face come out of nowhere, as though there was a better time to happen to us. But the suffering we face did not escape God. Everything that comes into our lives was not by accident. It was intentionally given to us. While we may be tempted to think that our circumstances happen by chance, God sovereignly ordained and works all things, as Ephesians 1.11 says, according to the counsel of his will. No matter how crazy and out of control our world or our lives seem to be, God, as one speaker says, never says oops. God never says oops. Now, there's been a lot of speculation on what the thorn could be. Some think it's a spiritual affliction that, based on the comment of a messenger of Satan to Rasmi, Paul's dealing with spiritual thorns. Others think it's a physical thorn, that, that it's maybe an ailment like his eyes, as he refers to in Galatians, or something else, like a relationship challenge, as he refers to the difficulties of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Still others think it was the suffering of the churches that he refers to, the agony, the anxiety that he deals with on constantly caring for their needs, as he talks about in just a chapter earlier. As I've studied this passage, I have looked at a lot of theologians and a lot of theologians, pastors, and every one of the writers and authors had their own thought on what it was, commenting on the variety of speculations surrounding Paul's thorn in the flesh, Spurgeon said, quote, I generally find that each expositor has selected that particular thorn which has pierced his own bosom. I believe the apostle did not tell us what his peculiar affliction was, that we may everyone feel that he had sympathy with us. We may believe ours is no new grief. We don't know specifically what the thorn was. What we do know is that it was so intense, so severe, that Paul had to plead with God that it be removed. 
He couldn't just shrug it off, grin and bear it. He needed relief. And we all face thorns at some points in our lives. They could be the life-shattering, earth-melting changes, or just the small daily anxieties that wear down and rip away at our souls, our personal thorns in the flesh. Each of us face them, and in a small way of commiseration, it's a comfort to know that even the great Apostle Paul was not was also suffering and had thorns in the flesh. So what is the reason for the thorn? The initial reason, while it may not be the primary, was, as Paul says twice, to keep me from becoming conceited. So one of the reasons for the thorn in the flesh was to keep Paul from becoming proud and boasting in himself. There are other reasons for the thorn that we will get to in a moment. But a specific reason for this thorn in Paul's life at this moment was to keep him from becoming conceited. That's not suffering in general, uh, but because of the surpassing revelations that Paul saw, there might be a temptation for Paul to walk away, even if he may not want to, and say, wow, not only did I start a bunch of churches, plant a bunch of church plants, and uh, evangelize people, I went up into heaven. None of you can say that, but uh, God loves me. <laughs> so that's what Paul wants to avoid. And we, well, at, at least I do, I have a tendency that when I'm doing well and excited about things spiritually, to get really conflated. It's kind of sad, really, that when I'm growing spiritually and I'm reading my Bible and things are making sense, I haven't put my foot in my mouth in the last five minutes, and I haven't gotten angry on the road, and I evangelize someone, and I saw the fruits of ministry that I'm so quick to go from gr- gratitude to God to congratulations on how lucky he is to have me. Now, I'd never say it like that, but the thought might start to form in the back of my head, thinking more highly of myself than I ought to. Now, not every suffering is a result of sin. That's very clear. John 9, the disciples and Jesus walked by a man who was born blind. And they said, okay, Jesus, who, di- uh, who sinned? Either this man or his parents. Someone, someone done messed up. Because he's born blind. That's the only conclusion we can think of. And that, that was the Silas translation of that passage, just so we're clear. Uh, and Jesus says, no, it wasn't because of this man's sin or his parents. It was so that God would get the glory through this. And that is the ultimate purpose for suffering. But there are sub-purposes as well. And sometimes, sometimes there will be a prick that pops the balloon of pride. And that is always a good thing. Now, just a quick comment on Paul's messenger of Satan to harass me. A purpose of the thorn was to keep Paul from becoming conceited. He says that twice. Humility is not a quality that Satan wants to see developed in Christ's followers. So he will do what he can to make you proud or tempt you to be proud. And yet, God gave Paul the thorn to keep him from becoming conceited. Like an epic action movie, in essence, God allows Satan to scheme and then uses those very schemes to defeat Satan's purposes. Now, defeating Satan's purposes and and Paul's pride are not the ultimate purpose of the thorn, as we'll see in a minute, but it is one or two reasons for it. Paul is given great revelations and then given great sorrow after it. Know this. Spiritual struggles, or, or, or sorry, spiritual successes are almost always followed by spiritual struggles. Think of the prophet Elijah. 
in First Kings 1, Elijah goes up onto a mountain and watches a Baal versus God uh, wrestling match, if you will. And God comes down with fire right over the altar while the Baal prophets stand in awe. So that even those who are just worshiping and trying to get Baal, a false god, to do something, now stand and say only one thing, the Lord, he is God. That must be an incredible feeling to watch God so powerfully work. And yet, a few verses later, we see Elijah cowering in a cave, fearful of the persecution. And a similar situation is with Paul. As Paul went up to heaven, so he is brought down with the thorn. And the same will be true of us. Loved ones, be sure of this. Those who dare make the biggest holes in Satan's defenses will be the biggest targets. Do not be surprised when trials and thorns come our way. For while Satan may not desire you to succeed, God has put them there to draw you closer to himself, where your purpose of the thorn and where your victory comes from in suffering. As God was with Elijah on the mountain and in the cave, with Paul in the lofty experiences and with the lowly thorn, so he has promised to be with us through the mountaintop experiences and, yes, even the valleys of the shadow of death. It is his rod and comforts and his presence that guides. So a thorn is given to Paul, and he pleads three times. Look at verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times. This wasn't just a, I don't like this tunic, I want to return it. I had a coupon. No, Paul is on his knees three different times, begging God, calling out to him, imploring that this painful thorn in the flesh should leave him. It is no secret that there is suffering and pain in this world. And the Bible does nothing to try and hide that fact. The Bible acknowledges the pain we go through. It shows that it's acceptable to ask for relief. Both Paul and Jesus do this. They model it for us. Paul pleads, Jesus prays for relief. If we were to turn to look at Matthew 26 and Luke 22, Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Praying that the cup should leave him, sweating almost drops of blood. Jesus' turmoil and suffering is so severe, so intense, that it, grief is almost killing him in a sense. And he prays for relief. Both Paul and Jesus pray and plead. But while both of them ask for the trial to be removed, notice how they ask. Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. And Paul honestly, humbly pleads. Thomas Watson, a Puritan pastor, said, quote, Here's the difference between a holy complaint and a discontented complaint. In the one we complain to God, in the other we complain of God. End quote. To put it another way, there's a big difference between a bitter complaint about God and imploring plea to God. The difference could be illustrated this way. Imagine a boy comes to his dad and says, I have a stomachache. The dad says, okay, well, you probably ate something wrong. And then the boy comes back the next two days and says, dad, my tummy doesn't feel good. At this point, the dad takes him to the doctor, and the boy sits in the, the waiting room or the, the operating room and, and sees, sees the dad come back from the doctor, and the dad says, Okay, you don't have to worry about a thing. Um, you have a, something called appendicitis. And 
a nurse is going to come and stab you with a needle. It'll be fine. And after that, a doctor is going to come in and rip you open with a knife, and it'll be for your good. It'll be great. Okay? Trust me on this. Now, most of us know that that surgery is, is unfortunately a little more common than we'd like to imagine, but the chances of survival are high, and it's pretty painless. But imagine telling that to a little boy. That is not his idea of fun. Nowhere in there. And yet, the boy has two options. The one is that he can sharply kick his dad's shins and run off screaming as fast as he can, trying to avoid the impending pain. Or another is that he crawls up into his dad's lap, says, I don't understand, Daddy, but I trust that you love me. He may not understand why his dad is making him go through this, but he trusts his father's care for him and believes his dad when he says it's for his child's good. Loved ones, there's a big difference between a shaking clenched fist in the air and a trembling clenched crib. Both are reactions to grief. Both are emotions in pain. And one is a bitter, angry Responsive doubt. The other is an honest, humble one. In whatever we face, our Father has given it to us by his divine wisdom, and he has done it out of love. As Spurgeon said, remember this, had any other situation been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. So Paul pleads humbly, honestly, for relief, and in response, look at verse 9. But he, the Lord, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That phrase that many of us have heard many times. What does it mean? Honestly, I think sometimes when I'm dealing with suffering, I want God to give power, not grace. I want him to come swooping in like Superman in in this epic, just in the nick of time, wipe away my suffering, and then everything's okay. I know he can do it. I know he's able Why grace? Why doesn't he do that? God says, my grace is sufficient in response to Paul's plea. How is grace power? You've probably heard grace defined as unmerited favor. Most of us will acknowledge that God gave us grace to be saved. He gave us salvation, giving us what we could never earn. And most of us know we need that grace to be saved from sin. But we forget we need that same grace to suffer well. It was the powerful work of grace displayed through the work of Jesus when we were lifeless and he saved us and gave us hope. And it is the same grace that gives us strength to suffer. The same way the power of a cross saved us, the power of a resurrected Savior enables us to suffer like he did. Who can say, God did the salvation part over here, and I'm grateful for that, but it's up to me to make sure that I work my way to heaven. I need to take that grace and act on it and make sure that I suffer like he did. I have to do that. I earned his daily care for me. The reality is none of us can. We depend on him for everything. And God, in his great grace, saved us from our sins, intercedes for us before the throne right now, gives us our daily bread and our next breath, and gives us his grace to suffer 
well. By his smiling kindness on us, he gives us power in our weakness. Not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, not because we even ask nicely with a pretty please cherry on top. Only because of his great love. And his grace is far greater than we tend to remember, far better than anything we could pray for, and far more wonderful than we could ever ask or think. His grace is the only grace powerful enough to turn praying Paul and praying people into powerful Paul and powerful people. As Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God did the hard part of saving you, how on earth would he do anything but bring you safely home? If we believe his word that he saved us at the cross, we must believe his word that he will keep us safe and firm to the end. It is not only grace to heal your sins and and diseases, it is grace sufficient enough to strengthen your weak knees. Are you tired? Worn out? Burdened by the loads you carry? Take it to Jesus, loved ones. He's the only one who gives rest. It is God's grace that gives us power to the strong, not to the strong, but to the weak. When you have almost given up on praying, God's grace is sufficient for you. When you have reached the end of your rope, God's grace is sufficient for you. When you have decided you can't make it through one more day with this aching pain, God's grace is still sufficient for you. How? Listen to Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How often are we in need? All the time. Grace is our help in our desperation, our aid in our need, and we find it at the throne of what? The throne of grace. If grace were a river, the throne of God is its source, and we go directly to that source to receive the life-giving water of grace that we so desperately need. We can't save ourselves and we can't suffer on our own well. We need him and we are powerless without him. To our need, God promises, and us in Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I remember when I first read that, I was about nine, and my nine-year-old hermeneutic was that Paul did the only thing he can do to get a thorn, and that's to play in blackberry bushes. It makes sense. So he's climbing through the blackberry bushes, lands one in his hand, and he goes to his parents, and in this case goes to God to, to remove the thorn. And God, in his booming voice, because to a nine-year-old, God always has a booming voice. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. It's like, well, what about the thorn? It's like someone who you know, says, hey, uh, what was the score to the game? And the reply is, oh, it was a great game. Great. What about the score? I'm glad God's grace is sufficient, but what about the thorn? Does God not care that his servant suffers? But as I have studied this passage, I have learned and I realized that this is not a cop-out response from a God who couldn't care less and refuses to answer our problems, our aches, our pains. Instead, it is one of the most kind responses of assurance a loving Heavenly Father could give to His child. He does care. 
Because in saying my grace is sufficient for you, he's saying you have me. I am the power made perfect in your weakness. You see that in verse 10, the power of Christ. When Paul pleads for relief, God says, I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to be with you in this pain. I'm going to give you the grace and strength and everything you need out of the fullness of myself because my grace is sufficient for you. This isn't just your average knockoff brand grocery store clearance that are stale from a discount store. This is custom design, fully outfitted, made for the moment, special delivery, custom grace for you. We are in desperate need of grace in our, or desperately in need, even in our suffering. Especially in our suffering. And what does God give us? The wonderful matchless grace of Jesus. Deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than a mountain, sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace for even me, for even you. The perfect amount of antidote for a weakness. His grace is not too little or too much. It is just sufficient for you. He has given us grace, not just at Calvary, but for every moment until that day he comes to take us home. Now, I, I know I'm young and inexperienced. I don't pretend to know the suffering that you guys, all of you, are dealing with. I won't even begin to imagine it. You would may be tempted to look at me and say, you don't have anything to say to my suffering, and I would agree with you. I hope that none of you are listening to me because I, you think I have something to offer you. I have nothing. But... I don't think any of us can say we suffered like Paul did. All I have is God's word, loved ones. And Paul said, I'm only sharing in Christ's suffering. Christ knows what you're going through. He has the scars to prove it. He endured great evil and suffering out of love for you so that when you suffer, you know that it is not wasted. It is purposed. It may not feel like that. A lot of us have been dealing with this thorn forever. Paul prayed three times. You've prayed 3,000 times. Your cry has been continually, How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You've pleaded and you've begged for it to be removed, and the pain and heartache has taken its toll, and all you hear is silence. You've asked for a better job, a more stable marriage, a breath of relief from chronic pain, just one more minute with a loved one. And the answer was no. After you've wept and wailed, pleaded and prayed, that moment when you finally have no tears left to cry and you're just heaving air in silence, I hope you hear the whisper of Second Corinthians 12. Here in this passage, I hope you hear God's gentle comfort, a promise of great hope. My grace is sufficient for you. This suffering is but for a moment, and the joy of eternity is coming, but until then, he's given you himself, and his grace is sufficient for you. How does Paul respond? Look at Paul's answer to God's assurance. From the answer to the uh, from the assurance to the answer, 
What is Paul's answer? He responds with boasting and he responds with contentment. First, Paul responds with boasting. Look at the second half of verse 9. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, Paul hates boasting. If you turn back to chapter 11, he describes it as foolish and unhelpful at best. Verse 16, he says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourself. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare boast of that. And then he continues to recount what he has gone through and boast of his experiences, only to then say in verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Remember, Paul is battling super apostles who boast about their flashy words and actions, and they point at Paul and sneer, what has he got to show him for himself? What has he done? What importance does he have? But they also point that Paul has weaknesses, which apparently, according to them, no Christian has weaknesses. I'm in a boatload of trouble, according to them. But Paul knows that his value is nothing. While he started all those churches, at the end of the day, he knows Christ in him did that. God is the one who is responsible for those. Boasting is counterintuitive to Paul because the traditional definition of boasting is self-exaltation. Paul's life goal is Christ-exaltation. So why would Paul boast in the things of his weakness? Because Jesus said, my, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, if that's how power is displayed, if that's how God gets the glory, then God give me the weakness. I boast in my weakness. I glory in my fragility. I would rather have Christ's strength powerfully displayed in my life at any cost. So if weakness is how God does it, do it. Bring the weakness, Lord. And I've met so many Christians who feel that the only solution to their pain is to just grin and bear it. In our American culture that says whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, we just need to buck up and get through it. That is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying when I get through this, I'll be strong. He says I can't get through it and in that I am strong. That's a paradox for anyone except the Christian. Here's the incredible truth of this passage. The grace of God is that he uses weak vessels to display his power. His power is useless to the strong. Like Jesus told the Pharisees, healthy don't need a doctor, sick do. Proud, sufficient people don't think they need God's grace. If we expect to get through trials, loved ones, by just gritting our teeth and bearing it, by pulling ourselves up from our bootstraps, we will never experience the grace that Paul is talking about. Even bodybuilders cannot lift everything, and we are not invincible. It's only when we humbly acknowledge that God has designed our suffering to draw us to himself, and we cannot do it our own, that's when we find that God's grace is sufficient. Though it may go against our proud American selves, we need Jesus, and only Jesus. And that is why trials come to draw us to Christ. J.I. Packer wrote, God uses chronic pain and weaknesses, along with other afflictions, as his chisel for sculpting our lives. Felt weaknesses deepens dependence on Christ for strength each day. The weaker we feel, the harder we lean. 
And the harder we lean, the stronger we grow spiritually, even while our bodies waste away. So the first answer is, is Paul's boasting, and the second response is his contentment. Look at verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is contentment? Contentment is being satisfied with your lot. As one person said, contentment is not getting what you want. It's wanting what you got. We tend to look at our circumstances for the joy that the circumstances in and of themselves produce, like a nice day on the beach, a promotion, peace and quiet for one cotton-picking moment, or other joys like that. We can be content with those, right? And it's almost as if we wish that Paul said, I am content with a great meal or with a delightful uh, service to the Lord. We can say, okay, that makes sense, Paul. It's when Paul says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, and everything else that the world says things to avoid, that we start asking, okay, how, well, hold up, Paul. How do you do that? Because there's nothing joyful about losing your job and trying to feed your family. Suffering is excruciating and hard, and sorrow flows freely when you lose your loved ones. When you face chronic pain every single day, when relationships strain and fail, when you watch those you care about walk away from the faith, when your anxiety seems to be the only thing that you have present. We weep and groan in the suffering. So how does Paul say that he's content with all these things? Where is the joy in that pain? The source of joy is not the pain itself. It's what the pain produces. To put it another way, think of someone who hates working out and exercising. Almost all of you just thought of yourself, didn't you? In any case, think of someone who hates working out and exercising. They, they get up in the day, they, they go to the gym, they push weights, they exercise, they do their cardio, and they're weeping and they're sweating, and they look at, someone looks at them and goes, why are you doing this? And they say, I don't know why it hurts. I don't know. My wife made me do it. I tried. Join this resolution. But in actuality, they do know why they're doing it. They do. It's so that they get a better body, that they, they get healthy, that they feel good about themselves. And in the same way, Paul is talking about a much more permanent reward. The pain of working out gives a greater reward than any, or sorry, the pain of working out is only slight and light, a momentary compared to the, the, the reward that we get with heaven. Just a few chapters earlier in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, Paul says, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, the suffering that Paul faces, as intense and horrific as that is, from being beaten and left for dead to dealing with anxiety of churches of people he loves saying, You're not helpful, to everything in between, Paul says, That's light and momentary compared to the great glory that God is preparing for me beyond all comparison. Not only is my suffering not worthy to be compared with that, nothing is. That is incredible, and it better be great, because some of you are dealing with some of the most intense suffering that you have ever faced in your life. And Paul says, just as surely, as great as your suffering is, the reward is greater still. And it's not just God will give you the reward despite the suffering. No, the suffering is preparing that very great glory. 
the nature of Paul's contentment is not giving into apathy and saying, Oh, great. I'm suffering for Jesus. Yay. It's not like he's shrugging and saying, Okay, I didn't get the relief I'll ask for. I guess I'll take the consolation prize of God's sufficient grace and presence in my life. No. He accepts joyfully this pain. Like James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you endure trials of various kinds, for you know what the pain produces, your perfection and Christ-likeness. Paul is not a defeatist and he's not a sadist. He doesn't enjoy pain for the sake of the pain. One, because he already played for relief from suffering. And two, if you enjoy suffering, it's not suffering. I hate math. Absolutely, with a passion. This is a trivial example. I'm not trying to trivialize your pain. But as a trivial example, some of you love math. I praise God for you, because then I don't have to do it. But, <laughs> but for you to say, oh, I, 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 I'm suffering in math. I was like, no, I saw your face when you did algebra. That's not suffering. Wallowing in pain in response to the circumstances, in light of the circumstances themselves, is not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about rejoicing in the circumstances because of what the circumstances do, in what Christ is doing, not because he enjoys pain, but because he enjoys the Christ and what Christ has promised. Again, this is present joy based on a future glory. A lot of us in our right now consumer mentality tend to think, I am going to suffer for Jesus as long as I get the relief tomorrow. And I don't care if it's fifty mi- uh, five minutes or 50 years, I'd better get it this time. I have no concept of what 50 years of suffering looks like. Please hear me, I'm not trying to discount that. But, our joy is right now, even if our reward is later, because of what Jesus did at Calvary. Just as sure as our salvation is, so sure is our reward because of the God who guaranteed it. For the Christian, the lot of life is bound up in Jesus and the eternal life and reward that is found in him. Christian contentment rests squarely on this truth, that God has directly and intentionally given to us by his loving hand every circumstance that's in our life. I'll say that again. Christian contentment rests squarely in the truth that our lots in life are directly and intentionally given to us by God's loving hand. When you and I boast gladly in our weaknesses and are content with our sufferings, we proclaim to our own souls and to the world the greatness of God's glory. While the circumstances bring nothing but aches and misery, the circumstances are the catalyst to share in Christ's likeness, and that is our goal. Contentment is finding joy in Christ, and when he is the constant source of our contentment, the rock on which we cannot be shaken, no wave of suffering can throw our joy away. Contentment is not the man who gets up out of a car accident and goes, Yay! I got in a car accident! What suffering are you rejoicing in? Again, rejoicing in the pain is not rejoicing, is, is rejoicing in your circumstances and not in what the pain produces, is not what Christ is doing. Instead, contentment is the man who emerges from a car wreck that just took the life of his wife and two daughters. And he comes out with third degree burns and he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I will praise his name, for I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. 
He can praise the Lord not because of his situation, which is excruciating and hard. There's nothing joyous about losing your family or facing pain. But because the death of his family and the trial of a car accident are the means by which they are preparing for him an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, and that is true and unchanging for eternity and cannot be shaken or taken away. Paul says in Philippians 4.13, one of the other misapplied verses that we often forget, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The context for that is he says, I have learned the secret of being content. I have learned in whatever situation I am. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty, hunger, and abundance, and need. What's the secret? Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, even suffer for his sake. Whatever comes our way, whether it's the small frustrations and daily anxieties that afflict us, or it's the worst tragedy, the most horrific nightmare none of us ever wanted to live, even there, God's grace is sufficient. And his power strengthens us to walk through even the valley of the shadow of death. Even in the valley, he will not leave us. Even in the shadows of death, his hand strengthens us, his rod comforts, and his presence guides. Our heart and our flesh may fail, but God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. And in this, like Paul, we can be content. You may not feel like boasting. You may not want to rejoice in the pain that you are facing. Left to ourselves, we can't have the answer of Paul. But by God's grace, we don't look to what is seen. We look to what is unseen, the greatness and grace of God that will come back to take us home. The very real paradox that Paul ends this section with is true for us in Christ. When I am weak, then I am strong, because God uses our pain, and it is not meaningless. Nothing is wasted. Not one drop of your suffering goes unnoticed or unused. We can be content. And by his sufficient grace, say, for God's sake, I am content with whatever comes my way. We have the affliction, the assurance for the affliction, and the answer. As the old hymn says, the flame shall not hurt you. I only design the dross to consume and the gold to refine. When we are weak, then we are strong. May we trust the Lord with the thorns he gives us. And learn to be gladly content in our weakness that so wonderfully displays God's strength in us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have called us to a weighty thing. To rejoice and say the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We cannot do it, Lord, without you. Keep our eyes fixed on the prize. Enable us, through the tears, to praise your name. To trust you, even when we don't understand the reason for the pain. Help us, Lord. We need you every hour. Be our vision. Keep our eyes fixed on you. 
And until that day when you come to take us home, help us to work and wait and to suffer for the sake of your name, for the joy set before us when we see you face to face. Hold us fast, Lord, by your strength, power, and grace alone. In Jesus' mighty, faithful name, the God who is coming soon, we pray. Amen.